We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Hey, what's up? Oh God, there's video, and Dan is totally fucking outclassed me on the Zoom backroom game. Look at this shit. <laughs> Dude, motherfucker, man. This, yeah, this is what... I, mean, I mean, I gotta, I gotta hold up the, the, the camera Cuban side of things. God damn it. I was hoping to occupy the David Sachs role in this like all in podcast rip, but I think I can't given that David has the best zoom background in the entire podcast. I'm not sure I can claim that seat. Oh, Jamath is better than David. Is Although it? David is improved his, I think he, he got feedback. His look like, you know, cheap. look at, look at this cardigan, dude. This is incredible. What the fuck oh, do is you going want me on? To be the Jamath? I mean, I can get rid of it. <laughs> this is, this is, this is amazing. This is Dan. I'm seeing a whole set of Dan. I hadn't, I hadn't known about before. This is, this is great. Yeah, you're definitely. I, I'm, a 10. I'm limited on my books here, so so next next episode depends which which home I'm in. I have better books. Oh, these, depends. Are, these are like my college. <laughs> which home? Depending which home I'm in. This is. Oh, I didn't realize Mehmet Oz had joined the chat here. Yeah. <laughs> Depending which of my real estate portfolio I can run for Senate in one of 14 yeah. states. This is <laughs> this wonderful. Is not making, but this is this is. Not. <laughs> Um, so guys, is SBF going to kill himself or what, what's, <laughs> what's, what's going to happen? <laughs> well, he, I, they originally were going to put him in the same, uh, holding facility that Epstein was in. And I think El Chapo was one in Brooklyn, but he got the $250 million bail, uh, because his parents put the house that he bought them with the ill-gotten gains. <laughs> I think, I think there was another person that they, an undisclosed, uh, bail person, but yeah, he, he's out. Yeah, and so is Carolyn. They can they can reunite before court. Bring the molecule back. <laughs> yeah. For me, the big the big news was I had I, I knew Palo Alto real estate was expensive. I had no idea um, <laughs> that, a, <laughs> that a house on this Stanford campus uh, uh, was was worth two hundred fifty million dollars. It's, it's very exciting uh, for those of us who own real estate in the Bay Area. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know. You can't believe what you believe on the crypto autist Twitter, but I think one of the, the tweets that I saw, which kind of is interesting, is th there was like a report that basically he had negotiated, I'll, I'll do extradition if I can get out on bail. And then the other question that people are wondering is, did he know that Caroline and Gary were, were going to flip? Because it just so happened as soon as he agreed to the extradition that they dropped that um, that they had already pled guilty to, to criminal trial. <laughs> not even civil. Like they, 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 these people are going to prison uh, without even a trial to just specifically flip on on uh, SBF. So and then and the and the news hit as soon as like the plane was in the air. It, Literally, it, there was like it, the it, first it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the photo of him looking like uh, Chapo getting right. off the plane. That you know. They, they've gone state's evidence. That's the real story, by the way. Can we just comment on the real story? He looks way better coming out of prison than he went going into it, right? Like, he actually looks pretty studly now. He looks, it looks like a scene out of Narcos or something. And then, how did he have, like, a shirt with French cuffs in jail? Like, did you notice that? That he had, like, the cuffs undone without the French cuff thing in it? Yeah. How the hell did that happen? Yeah. Um, yeah. Isn't it ironic how, how Caroline ended up being, like, very based um, to SBF's, um, SBS Woke? 
I don't know if base would be the term I'd use to describe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right-wing rationalist. Her, her, um, Tumblr, her Tumblr was a little raw. Uh, you, have to, you, have to, you have to put it out there. She wanted uh, a harem, of, like, where people fight each other uh, for, for their rank. <laughs> um, I didn't he, realize she was younger yeah. than he was. So he kind of preyed on a younger person oh. at Jane Street. Because uh, she, she graduated from Stanford and then went to Jane Street and, and then joined him on Alameda. I also, I mean, the, the, all this stuff came out in the SEC complaint. He owned 90% of Alameda. Gary had 10%, no outside capital. So that, that seems a little odd that no one had picked up on that. And then, uh, I mean, it, it, the SEC, based on these two folks, they're basically saying that from the start, the, the entire thing was a fraud, right? Like we were talking, oh, maybe he got out and over his skis in May. No, like the money that hit FTX at the beginning was going right to the Alameda bank account. Uh, that 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 software that was right. He did not write the code. He 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 was right. Gary wrote the code for him. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's it's the the scale of Madoff with the the drama of Theranos. Like we're we're you know, I mean, so, maybe as a plea deal and just go so with the financial autism of crypto, right? <laughs> kind of yeah. thrown into the mix so as well. Predictions, guys. Predictions. What, what happens? They they all go to jail. SBF. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Does um, what happens to CZ? Well, I you know I think that is a <laughs> or what happens to Binance this year? Well, look, whether it's Binance or Tether or everything, since I've been in crypto, there's always been an offshore exchange or exchanges, and uh, people have always said, "Oh, this one's going to come down," and you know, it's usually the U.S. government is not not the reason. It's actually it, it's either a competitor or they implode, they get hacked. Uh, and I think I, at one point, I think I shared this. It's, it's, so if you just go back, Mt. Gox, based in Japan, hacked. The next one after that was uh, Bitstamp, hacked. Um, they're still around, but, you know, shell what they used to be. Then Bifinex, which created Tether, hacked. Then Poloniex, they actually are the, the, the best one. They, they sold the top. They sold the circle. And then when they sold, um, basically what happened was circle is a U.S.-based company run by a legit management team. So they went through the customer base and actually had to start doing KYC, know your customer. And they basically had no volume left because like, all, all <laughs> the polo volume had been offshore. And so when they had to clean up the business, it, overnight, like Polo went from biggest exchange in the world, it was, it was the Binance of its time, to nothing. And then that's actually when Binance showed up. And, and so you know, throughout that, obviously, a plug for, for Coinbase here is that like Coinbase has existed the whole time. But, the, the entire time I was at Coinbase was always some new competitor, almost always overseas, uh, actually always overseas. And, and they were offering leverage and all this other kind of stuff that you couldn't offer in the U.S. And like, even if you went to the SEC or the SCFTC and said, hey, we want to do it by the book and, and follow every rules, absolutely not. And so what would happen is you would you'd have these folks and most of them intended to be in Asia and they, uh, they would offer 100x leverage. And you talk to any prop shop trader who they're allowed, like the professional traders in Chicago are allowed to trade. They'd be like, this is the greatest thing ever. I get to trade 100x against retail. Like I, I'm usually in, in equities, I have to compete. And I mean, Antonio used to live in this world. I have to compete against the most sophisticated people in the world for like, like fractions of a penny versus I get to trade against retail who are trading on 100x leverage who have absolutely no idea what they're doing. And so I, I think hopefully after... FTX and, and, and you know, put, put Binance to the side, I, I do think you're going to see a little bit more of a, a clampdown because now I think a lot of these international countries that were kind of letting people shop for jurisdiction before don't, don't want to end up on a U.S. sanctions list because I, I think post-FTX, I don't, I don't think you can have your, your thing in Malta. I mean, Singapore basically already said that they, when I was at Coinbase, they wanted to be a crypto hub, no longer. So I, I think it's going to tighten up, which... Generally, is going to be good for the the kind of above board actors, and, and probably the decentralized stuff, right? Like, so it'll be like this barbell where you have the the companies following the rules, and then the stuff that's actually truly internet native with no centralized counterparties that could do fraud. Yeah. So, Dan, this is a question I was going to ask you, and it's, I'll, I'll ask the leading leading form of the question, which is like, is is a shadowy offshore entity with um, you know completely opaque uh, you know books, and then you know the ability for you know individuals involved in it to walk away with all the money, hypothetically, like is that consistent with the spirit of crypto, or is that like actually not consistent with the spirit of crypto? Yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean, 
what is it? Gel man amnesia, right? Like I, I used to believe everything I read in the newspapers and I show up to Coinbase and then all, all I'd see is every single time there's an article in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, I could just point out every single uh, you know, inaccuracy. And, and the, the fact that there has been no mainstream publication that, that I'm aware of that has just simply said the, the difference between FTX as being a kind of centralized Ponzi scheme fraud no different than Bernie Madoff or anything else that could exist in traditional finance. And the fact that throughout all the stuff that's happened this year, all the stuff that happened in May with all the liquidations that happened, and then more recently, not a single one of the DeFi protocols, the, the major things, where, where, by the way, Alameda had loans out. None of them weren't, were, you know, they were all solvent. They, they were able to liquidate because it was just code and, and it just ran you know, as designed. And now, obviously there are DeFi protocols that can get hacked, and but those are different things. Like from a pure, like, can I create the fake fiat at FTX account with the fake accounting books and then hide it and, you know, sponsor Tom Brady and Giselle and all this other, like, no, the DeFi protocol can't do that because, uh, you know, the, the crypto autist can look on Etherscan and be like, huh, something's off. And it, it turns out actually what caught uh, uh, you know, FTX to begin with was people kind of like paying attention on a bunch of stuff on the blockchain. And, and so I, I think it's like the, the branding is always what is the most negative story I can say about crypto and conveniently leave out the facts when it actually worked as function, especially. And it's like, oh, maybe the world should be a little bit more like this. Yeah, I mean, just to fully drive home this Web3 crypto thing, hoping it doesn't sound too much of a plug because now I'm working in Web3, but like, it's weird, right? Like full Web3 crypto has completely open books all the time, right? So like in the case of my little company, Spindle, attribution company, we can do better modeling of a, of a business, of a project. You, like we walk into a pitch with better dashboards than they have, right? Because we have more access to data. We're a little bit more, we can spend a little bit more time. We can figure out like how users are actually moving through there. And it's really strange. Like one of these days, a crypto company is going to go public and just won't be able to comply with non-disclosure rules, right? Because like you're going to know their, you're going to know their revenue until the second before the IPO or the second before the actual quarterly earnings call because it's in a Dune dashboard, bro. You can just go and look at it, right? There's no way to hide it. So anyhow, it's just, it's a bizarre imponderable, but maybe you thought about how this is going to work going forward, Dan. Well, but like, well, I mean, even, even Coinbase, for example, like just the fact that Coinbase's volume is public every day, because that's just the way crypto exchanges work. Like you can put a model together, like there could be a real time dashboard of like, this is what Coinbase's earnings for the most part is going to be. And, and like the fact that none of the kind of like financial infrastructure in Wall Street is like at least done that right. in a way. Right. It's just like it, it will get there and then people will kind of be like, well, why are we waiting like this like weird 90 day period to then have these like people come in and, you know, stamp it, which obviously their potential, you know, Enron being an example of where, you know, you get the wrong auditor and, and they can kind of hide things. And so it's like, well, why aren't we just doing this continuously real time in a transparent way that everyone can actually see? It, it just clearly is the future. The question is like, how, how do we get from here to there? Right. Dan and I were together when the FDX news first came out. We were in Puerto Rico. And because I'm interested in a good story, I was immediately getting to, okay, what's, what's the redemption arc? Uh, or what's the next, you know, whether it's five years in prison or 30 years, in, you know, he's only 30 years old uh, and even Callan is even younger. So th there has to be like some second act. And, and one thing Dan mentioned is we, we weren't sure if anyone who'd ever been charged for a big fraud had ever kind of redeemed themselves in any, any kind of way. Um, Mark, you've been doing business for, for many decades now, and you've seen people go to prison and come out and, and you know, have next acts. Obviously, this is like, you know, a huge act um, that's un unprecedented. But I'm curious for your reaction to that. Big fraud. I mean, look, people have been convicted of things and come out and done fine. Right? I mean, so the an an obvious example is Michael Milken, um, you know, um, you know, and, and he, 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 you know, he, he, he had security, you know, sort of uh, convicted of securities violations um, and came out and you know, he's reinvented himself as a as a as a philanthropist um, and, um, you know, uh, a, a man of many interests. Um, uh, and I think he's done quite well. Um, you know, again, as a much smaller example, Martha Stewart, um, you know, I think uh, probably is not the same as she was before, but, you know, came out and has done, you know, some interesting things. Um, yeah, a big, it's a good question, a big fraud. Well, I mean, Martin the big is on the redemption tour right now on Twitter. What, is that? <laughs> Martin Shkreli. He's on his Martin, own redemption Martin arc. Shkreli. But again, it's like, what? yeah, was that, like, how much of that, you know, what did, what did he get? What did he go to, He went down for what? It was like issues with, it was how he kept the books at his hedge fund, right? Yeah. But it Price wasn't country. a... But it was weird. It, yeah, right. It was some set of those things. But it was weird because I think part of his defense, if I have it right, is I don't think anybody actually lost money. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's customer money fraud is is if you if you were yeah. limited to that, I don't I don't think there's much of a redemption arc from there. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. It's like, um, yeah, I mean, Madoff is still in prison. Ken Lay, you know, di- uh, died before he went to prison. What about Bernie Ebers? Bernie Ebers, I think is is he still in prison? I can't remember. Yeah, that's what I said to Eric. Is I I just think that if you if you touch customer money, like I remember. Yeah. Very clearly at Coinbase, we had at one point as we were growing, we had outside counsel, and they, they kind of said, here are the things you're not supposed to do. And if you cross this line, you go to jail. <laughs> it was like, okay, like, don't ever move customer money from the account that says customer money to anything else otherwise. And, and like, that was so clear. And so when, when this story first broke, I'm, I'm like, okay, like this is, he's totally toast. There's no way well, to come back. Well, they mislabeled it. I mean, you, you could understand that, right? <laughs> yes. Eight billion sloshing around. By the way, of which like, you know, a month ago, you had all these publications saying he was the, you know, the, the genius founder, like we could all be as smart as him. The world would be great. And then a month later is, I don't know, like I, I you know, wasn't, wasn't paying attention. So. Can I just say how amazing it is that the mislabeled account was for exactly eight billion dollars? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was wasn't, a, it, wasn't it? Wasn't it? There was that story was something like a, a sketchy Korean account or like yes, Korean Twitter account or like yeah, our Korean our Korean friend. So yeah, uh, yeah. it's in, it's in the it's in the indictments. I don't know. It's in the yeah. uh, it's in the indictments. Yeah. Uh, the the government documents. But yeah, it says that it, at one point they reclassified. But the real question it. is, do we think that the Michael Lewis book movie is actually going to be good? Because because realistically, he he was embedded for six months. He, he couldn't detect that he was a fraud. Maybe it was a whole game or, you know, like maybe he was the one that tipped off CZ and we're going to find out that later. But like, if you, if you can't tell that he was actually a fraud up close, like, I don't know. I mean, the thing with Michael Lewis is that his narratives are always perfect, right? I think we've discussed this, right? Like it's always this, and I, and I think often that can work well. I think the big short, like I, I had a small brief role in the whole credit crisis. I was a jury junior, Quanta Goldman. And I thought the big short did a very good job of telling kind of what that was about right but it was all a little bit too neat and perfect but i guess that's how it has to be for it to be presented as like a a popular narrative um yeah i here's another question why didn't sbf just like run a moderately successful crypto exchange pocket a bunch of money live in the bahamas and that's the end of it why did he have to make a total shit show of it was there actually a viable business there or was it was it always necessarily a fraud like could a normal person maybe less hopped up in whatever meds he's on could have just said, you know, that's it. We're just gonna we're just gonna run this as a normal business. Or was that just was it like Madoff in which there was no hedge fund? Like it was like 100 percent fraud from day one. And what was well, his end game? Like, what was, what well, like yeah, I, I, you can speculate on the end game. Let, let me let me steal, man. Like his his <laughs> vision, at least in terms of what he was pitching people. And uh, even even I last year was kind of in awe, a little bit of like believing that he was really going to execute on this. It was okay. There are no derivatives in crypto. All of the derivatives are offshore. He went, he, he was living in, in Berkeley, Alameda, the, that was, and, and he moved to Hong Kong. So this is actually one interesting thing is most American crypto founders, when they want to do something of, of this like legality on, on the, like you can't do this in the US, refuse to move overseas, right? They're, they're pretty comfortable in San Francisco or New York. He, he actually got up and, and moved. So, so he, he did that. The other thing is like FTX originally, I'm sure there were plenty of Americans that got through it in the early days. FTX offshore really didn't have American customers for the most part. FTX US did, and it sounds like those books were commingled. So that, that's going to be a, a huge issue for him. But he was offering uh, derivatives and, and actually offering it, and it worked at Jane Street. Like the, 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 the product actually did work. Big star. He was using all the customer money and, and didn't have to pay loans and all, all this other kind of stuff. So he was scaling it with like a cheat code. But in terms of people actually doing the trading, it's not like the, they didn't actually weren't able to do the trades. Like I remember during the uh, 2020 election, he, he, he booted up like a prediction market because he could do anything. It was Wild West. He was doing everything offshore. And then his move was, OK, I'm, I'm crushing you, you know, crypto bull market 2021. I'm moving to the Bahamas. I'm going to take all of this offshore money that I, I, I can't offer these American customers derivatives. I'm gonna start snapping up assets. So he bought this company Blockfolio, turned it into FTX US. He bought 7% of Robinhood. And then he started sponsoring all these major athletes. And if the scam had continued to go and it hadn't necessarily blown up and he had gotten this legislation passed, which if you know that had happened, he would have probably backed himself into basically becoming the preferred US-based like CFTC approved derivatives exchange. 
And it would have been the first crypto native company to actually have that license. Like I, I, we went a huge rabbit hole on Coinbase on this and Coinbase has since made an acquisition on a company there, but he was, he was out way ahead of them. And so if you all of a sudden get derivatives and Antonio, you know, this is like, if you have derivatives, that's it's like 10 X or hundred X the size of the, yep. the, the, the spot market. And so that would have become the institutional play in the U S and he would have effectively taken all this offshore money and used it to buy brand equity in the US, both in the political donations, but also just kind of like having all these, you know, celebrities. Um, and, and then would have gotten himself a law passed and, and now had a regulated US entity. And he could have moved back to the US and, and maybe shut down the, the international. So, so that, that's the steel man version of it. Obviously, it was a complete fraud from the beginning based on the SEC stuff is that he was using customer money the whole time. And that was how he could grow so fast. Company only started in 2019. And he was worth $32 billion last year on paper. Like another indictment of all these stupid lists, by the way. It's like, they, what, what diligence did they do? It's like, oh, here, here's the spreadsheet. It says I'm worth $32 billion. Great. Put them on the cover. Like, come on. So I guess the, 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 the counter, I mean, there's a bunch of counter arguments to the steel man, but um, so, so, so the market, so the, the, the exchange was real. The, the exchange was real, however, to the extent that it was absconding with customer funds, that, it, you know, its, it's various activities were being funded with customer funds, let's say. And then it was, you know, absconding with them and transferring the hedge fund and so forth. Like, and this is ultimately what caught him up, right? Which was like, okay, it, it, it was real, but like, it was real, but it could never settle out. Like, again, to your point, like it, it had to, it had to get all the way to the end because if it, if it, if it was ever asked to settle out, like if all the customers ever actually said, you know what, we're just going to take a breather here and let's just like, you know, take stock of what we have. It was always going to cave in. Is that right? Until it, until it got to a certain, until it, until, until it got, until it would have gotten to the point that you described. Is that right? Yes. I mean, look, I'm sure there are a bunch of details that I'm, I'm glossing over there, but just at a, at a peak, if, if you really believe this like $50 billion Alameda, like that was way more than the customer assets, right? There was plenty of leverage. They, they had rode up on the value of these tokens. So if they'd taken more liquidity last year out, potentially you could have, you could have closed the gap. So, so there was probably a point last year where you could have dumped on, dumped on retail is, is the term at, for, from his standpoint, because obviously Alameda is a, is a, Mark maker and like that, that, that shouldn't be in the same thing with an exchange. But if he had taken out enough money and, and, and filled the, the customer gap, a billion on 50, okay, but obviously there's some leverage there. So I, how much it compresses down, but yeah, look, probably never, never, never happens. But if he had gotten that, that license in the US and had been out there for a year or two and had bought himself in with all the politicians and, and Wall Street, I don't know. It's and how close, how close do we think he got, he, he was to getting that license? That that's another question. Like, uh, you know, you talk to different people, and they would have said that they would have never passed. And obviously, the Republicans won the House by a little bit, which means that that law that hadn't he hadn't blown up in in November, could he have gotten it passed as part of this omnibus thing? Maybe. Yeah. And if if you believe, I mean, if you believe his statement, his statement is that he, you know, <laughs> his statement is he donated an equal amount of money to Republicans. And we just don't know what it, what it was. So at least in theory. Yeah, I, I was, if, if that if that's true, he was working both sides to try to get yeah, that done. So, so, so very well could have. I mean, uh, I think you were the one who pointed out, out Mark, of just like how much the, the Enron, all the money ended up coming back. And so I went back. My favorite thing is like splunking through just like news articles. And so just how Enron was covered. And then as as the fraud became you know clearer and clearer, the politicians quickly shifted all, all in one lockstep to just giving the money back. Because uh, they didn't want to be involved with it, and so I, I think we may be starting to see it. Supposedly, ProPublica is willing to give back the 1.6 million that they were given. So, but the Intercept is not, or is still debating it. As or, of this or Semaphore, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just all of the SBF mainstream media headlines just remind me of the austere religious scholar. <laughs> <laughs> when when Baghdadi was killed, um, you know, it's just there's. Uh, what's the most terrible way we can we can kind of push them? Austere crypto entrepreneur. D yeah, exactly. Disheveled crypto entrepreneur. That's what it is. Yeah, altruistic. Yeah, altruistic. Utopian. Yeah. Um, so as, as we make predictions for Twitter for for the next few months, is is uh, is it a fair predictive model to say the most entertaining outcome is the most likely? Like. <laughs> I mean, if that's not a law at this point, like, I mean, it's been like proven multiple times. But 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 let's run that out. That means that means J. Cal runs Twitter, right? Because that, that would be the most amusing outcome. And has is that going to happen, right? Is that the next step? Or Balaji, for example. <laughs> I, no I, think, I think Elon's going to, you know, 
it's, it's going to be like the, the CEO and then the head of software and, and servers. <laughs> and I think that's the CEO job. I mean, that's probably actually the most likely output. Like the yeah. lieutenants that somehow get under-discussed at SpaceX and Tesla who keep these companies running while he's off in, in Twitter land, like one, one of those people should probably run it, right? Well, well it's well known that, that SpaceX, like Gwen, like runs that company, the business, like making sure that, you know, all of the launches, they're doing it launch every six days right now. It's insane. All of that happens because of the operational excellence that she's, she's kind of driving. And, and Elon is on the critical path. Like he just like, whether that's Starlink or space, Starship, like, okay, I need to be in Boca Chica and I'm just going to drive to, to whatever the next part of the critical path is. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it works at, at Twitter, right? Like you're, you're, he's head of comms and head of figuring out what the blocker is and, and the, someone else can deal with the advertisers and subscription um, revenue and all that stuff. Every six days. So we, we land rockets on their ass every six days now. That's just what we do now as a species. It used to be a miracle. Now it's boring. That's, that's how it goes. Yeah. Okay. Let's send, map send up satellites so that we can have Zoom calls from anywhere on Earth. Like, yeah, right. it's amazing. Let's map out the, the, uh, the best outcome and what is the outcome that we're trying to avoid. Like, let's say we're, we're Elon's advisors. Mark is literally a you know, investor and advisor to Elon. But let, let's say we were hypothetically, uh, you know, he was soliciting our advice on how to get closer to that best outcome in the next, you know, six, 12 months and how to avoid the, the possible worst outcome. What, what would we be telling him? Dan Antonio, do you want to take a first step? I think what Elon's trying to achieve, not, not that I know him at all or I'm at all involved in any of this, but I, I think he, I think he is ultimately kind of a centrist who believes and is trying to maintain to some degree, although going about it perhaps in a, in a slightly haphazard way, maintain Twitter as like center court in the elite Wimbledon, right? Like everyone sits there and dunks on each other and that is the center court. And I think if he fails, which the cynic in me says he's probably doomed to fail in the, over the long term, right? Which is that social media will fragment and we can't share a, 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 a you know, a, a social network. I mean, look, look at the hue and the cry that has erupted after some of Elon's decisions when it seems as if the politics driving the decisions have shifted just ever so slightly, right? But if I can, uh, the hue and the cry, but, but again, here, here we go back to our, uh, our old argument about, about, about uh, the nature of conflict in, in our system. The, the hue and the cry has resulted in, uh, this is public, you know, Twitter's, Twitter's usage uh, is way up as a consequence of the hue and the cry. Right. True. Yep. So, I mean, isn't, isn't, look, maybe social media is unique like this or Twitter is unique like this, but like, doesn't controversy just drive usage? The flip side of that, though, is that I think blocking is good. And I have a shitload of blocks and I know everyone here has a shitload of blocks. And like, at some point you just say, no, I'm going to erect the wall with this body of thought. It's not worth engaging either for you or for me. And like, we're done, right? Like, it's a breakup. And why wouldn't that happen at a network level as, as a counter argument, Mark? Because the killer app for Twitter is to duck on your enemies. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right. It's no fun. It's no fun if they're not there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the one of the funny things about Twitter, the pre pre Elon, one of the funny things is like block. I don't know if you know, block doesn't actually block, right? right? Like I still see a lot of their tweets. <laughs> um, and in particular, it doesn't block on uh, it does it's a quote tweets. It doesn't block in the uh, the contents of a quote tweet, or at least a lot of the time it doesn't. I always I always thought that was on on, on purpose. <laughs> So I'll give you the bull case uh, that I think is interesting is you get through all the chaos and there's going to be a lot um, and a lot of iterative stuff and a lot of reversals of the decisions just to kind of keep the train moving. Um, but I think that distribution is, is what Twitter is ultimately, like from a product standpoint. And if they actually figure out that like rather than some of the stuff, the features, like it's actually about like, okay, I have an audience. I want to get it out to as many people as possible. Uh, Twitter is the best place to do that. I think that they have a lot of potential in eating into video, right? Like, which is, if you, you just look at whether it's TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, like the, the pushes on video. And the reality is if I want to get it out to the most people possible, like where, where would I do that, right? And, and actually doing it on Twitter feels like the place that more people can, can distribute video. And he seems, I have no inside knowledge, just based on what he's publicly saying, is thinking about like, okay, how, how do I get a Mr. Beast who obviously is on YouTube today and just actually give him more of the share of whatever he's doing. And, and the view count change that we were you know, presented with, I think this morning, and it's insane the level of like shipping is happening, right? Like, yeah, people can make fun of the square corners and the businesses, but the fact that they like made that change and then implemented it and it's like, yeah, is it perfect? No, it like kind of looks bad, but the reality is it's like forward progress. 
and he's extremely good at doing that in, in his other businesses. So I, I think making the, the kind of shift towards like, this is distribution, which is the value of the New York Times and, and all of these traditional newspapers is like getting the mimetic idea out to as many people as fast as possible. That, that feels like the bull case. And so it's like solved through this, all this drama. And I bet you the average American doesn't even really know like, you know, what the average journal going to Mastodon thinks. Um, but the other, the other interesting thing is he's, he's super into polling, right? And so I don't know if you guys know this, I actually built one of the first Twitter API applications in college called Strawpoll, and there was no native polling. So he's like, you'd reply like with a number and it did all this stuff in the API. It was, it was pretty janky. But the thing I, I was super interested in is like, okay, so the Wall Street Journal does a poll for a politician, what, what thousand N? And you get all the statisticians that made it go, oh, blog big numbers. Like you don't actually, you don't need more people. But I think there's something really powerful, but how many people voted in the, the poll, Elon, for like CEO, 17 million? And like, obviously you could say they were bots. And, but what if they just actually start to get like more targeted? Like I, I put a license up and it's like, I get some benefit or I get, you know, cheaper, uh, the, the Twitter blue, but now I can actually show that I live in this city and like, I am an American citizen. Like, and, and now all of a sudden you can actually cut a vote but that to me found it's like really, really powerful because I, I think I posted this today in the, in the chat before the, he, he just at tweeted cinema and tester on something in the omnibus bill and tester responded to him, right? Like yeah. and no one at Twitter used to do that, right? Like, but, but the fact that now you have someone who's just like running the business, like, like Hearst or Pulitzer was running a newspaper and saying, Hey, uh, do you want comment for Twitter? And I expect you to respond on Twitter, not through some channel. So it just went direct. I, it, I think people are underestimating, like, when you actually have someone with a point of view that this distribution is actually really valuable, like, what, what you can actually do with it. It's just, we've been used to Twitter and not having any innovation for 15 years. I was going to say, there's, there's two big macro, and I'm involved in it, so um, I'll, I'll be careful what I say, but um, there, there's two big macro bets kind of embedded in, in what he's doing that, that I believe in. So, so one is just, Dan, to your point, like, the, the current state of consumer internet, social media, user-generated content after the last eight years is it's very suppressed. Um, you know, it's, it's the censorship regime is very heavy. Um, and, you know, and, and as usual with censorship machines, there's like the formal censorship regime that basically says, you know, if you say this, you get nuked. And then there's the self-censorship regime that results from that, which is people don't, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't want to stray close to the line. Um, and so, uh, you know, it is like really significant that you, you know, kind of at, at long last, you have somebody who really is going to open up the, the, the conversation. Of course, that, that's already begun. Uh, the other, also to your point, but I'll just, I'll double underline it, which is um, the speed of innovation. Like the, my, my argument basically is that, um, you know, sort of, you know, Steve, Steve, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs was a super genius and, and, and Apple was a spectacular, obviously, a, you know, one of the great spectacular successes in, in the whole history of business and tech. But, you know, I'd say people, a lot of people in the industry have adopted what I would consider to be an overly simplified view of the Steve Jobs product development ethos, which is basically, right, you know, basically do very little, right? Um, it, it's like, was, you know, Steve's thing always was, you know, say no to a lot more things than you say yes to. And, and, you know, the response to that is, yes, if you're Steve Jobs, that makes total sense, <laughs> right? Because, like, you you know, the world is your oyster. You have all these things that you can do. You, you, you know, you, you really want to focus in for... For most entrepreneurs and for most companies, like that's, I don't think that's actually good advice. I think the answer often is actually do more um, and be more aggressive and move faster um, and um, be more experimental and try more things. Um, and, uh, you know, he's obviously way on that page. Um, and so I, I think both of those are pretty significant wedges to really open up the opportunity space. My hope is that people like uh, his peers, uh, whether it's like a Larry Page or a Bezos or a Gates or something, are... The, the the failure mode would they'd be looking at Elon and saying, oh, I don't want to face the the negative um, you know feedback that he's getting. Um, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. A positive take would be, oh, I too can innovate within my organization. I too don't have to be hostage to what a certain group of people in my in my companies, whether that's Google or whether that's the Washington Post. Um, if more people felt that they had more agency um, of his peer set, people who actually do have the agency just ha have to have the sort of, you know, want, want to do it. But you cited three people who are not involved in their businesses anymore. Like, that, that's the difference. Is Elon is, like, in the factory day-to-day, -day, and then now he's obviously involved in Twitter. All three of those people are... are but they could be. Or, or, or if you're one of those, right, you could, you could take over another company and do it, right? Which is the other yeah. just, like, amazing, spectacular thing happening here, right? 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, look, we our, our system, I don't know, you could, you could, there's like a positive way and a negative way of looking at it. The positive way is Nassim Taleb's, you know, kind of thing where he says that, uh, you know, that our, our, our system basically curses our, our best and most productive people with wealth and fame. Um, right. And then, you know, you can kind of park it because um, you don't need to work anymore. Um, the, you know, the, the negative view is our system is brutal uh, towards, you know, the, our, our most kind of creative, primal, um, you know, kind of niche, Nietzschean figures. Um, and, uh, you know, over time, the, the, the pressure of being in that level of spotlight just gets to be like too intense and people just don't want to live that way anymore. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a combination of both of those. But, yeah, I, I think exactly to your point, like I, I think, um, yeah, Elon is providing a great case study for actually, no, like get off the couch, like do something great, which I think is, is fantastic. Yeah. One thing you've you've tweeted about, Mark, is this idea that, you know, even if a company like Twitter did, let's just say, want to implement, you know, total free speech uh, on the Internet, they're actually like, it's not only up to them that there are other companies that are involved in the Internet stack that if pressure were to be so big, could, um, you know, they could, if they, you know, companies that own operating systems or other companies could, could get involved. And, um, you know, we saw hints of that a few weeks ago with... Uh, the sort of Elon challenging Apple, and then you know, it turned out he had a, a nice walk with Tim Cook or whatever. But it seems that it's possible that there could be, at some point, something. You know, Civil War is a strong name, but like some inner conflict between between tech companies, given that there's so many different or there are different choke points. Yeah. So you know, look, I think it's becoming fairly obvious now. But I would just say the the the, the censorship pressure, the, the the pressure to control, and I would you know say subvert, um, you know, the technology stack at each layer is is very intense. And I think maybe maybe outsiders have not fully understood how intense it is, but it's it's incredibly intense. Um, and you know, I've been arguing that you can you know you can see it. I think increasingly clearly at the level of social media, user generated content. You can see it in search. You can see it in video. Um, you know, you can see it increasingly in payments, um, which is a whole a whole kind of related thing. Um, and, and I've been arguing that this same pressure is going to end up causing, you know, the same kind of censorship regime that is in place at, you know, let's say the social media layer or the user generated video layer. I've been arguing that it's just a matter of time before that also shows up in the browser, <laughs> shows up in the email client, um, shows up in the operating system, shows up at the ISP level. Um, it, it's already, it's already, it's already showed up at the CDN level, right? It's already showed up at video distribution networks. It's already showed up at DNS. Right. Like you can, you know, you can you can lose DNS um, if you say the wrong thing. Um, and so it, it, it's at many of the layers already. And the, and the other layers, I, I think it's just a matter of time. Like, look, it's every every major mobile operating system um, has child protection safety features that could be turned into censorship features tomorrow. Um, every email system has anti spam capabilities that could be turned into censorship tomorrow. Every browser has child safe, right? Um, uh, and various kinds of security measures that could be turned into censorship tomorrow. So, so, so the mechanisms are already built in too. Every, by the way, every ISP has content filtering. You know, they've all got the ability to filter content, do packet inspection. Um, and so the, the, the infrastructure is in place for basically a complete lock-in of every layer of the tech stack. And there are very powerful forces, uh, both inside and outside these companies, inside and outside government. Uh, who want the kind of censorship regime that you see in social media or user-generated user content to kind of apply across the tech stack, right? And so that's a so that's a vulnerability. Any any layer of that stack, anybody who tries to bring to market, you know, whether it's a phone or it's a browser or it's an email client or it's a social media app or anything, if you try to bring it to market and you stray off the rules, right, that have been established, um, by you know, kind of by 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 this kind of pressure campaign, um, you are in risk of getting nuked, right? You're you're just yeah, and, and, and this has happened, right? You know, the parlor was kind of the classic example where they got like nuked at every layer layer of the stack on the same day. Um, the the counter argument on that, the kind of pro pro Elon argument is like, boy, if you were going to fight that, right, you would fight it with the biggest megaphone in the world. Right. Like you, 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 you to, to fight it, like you would want to be able to attack back at such a gigantic level of light presence and visibility and strength. Um, you know, you, you'd want to have such a large stick uh, to be able to whack away at the people who are coming at you. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> hypothetically, if you were going to fight that trend, you would buy Twitter. And, and also have a rocket company that can put your own private uh, Internet space lasers between the satellites so that you can actually beam down the content to anyone on Earth. Yeah, I look, you know, maybe, you know, there, there's always this question, Antonio mentioned, there's always this question of like, do we end up with separate stacks? Do we end up with separate? Is there a red phone and a blue phone, a red search engine, a blue search engine? You know, do, do these things cleave apart? You know, historically, you know, they haven't really like, in, in, you know, we could, again, we could kind of debate like why, why that is, but, um, you know, they haven't really. But, you know, look, if, if you, yeah, if you want to get sufficiently cyberpunk about it, right, exactly. It's like, okay, 
you can live in the free world and you have your satellite connection and you get access to whatever you want. And then you've got this like heavily constrained and filtered view uh, that comes in over, over the wire connection in your house because all the telcos have been compromised or whatever, right? Um, and so maybe, maybe that's, maybe, you know, look, maybe that's our world in 30 years. Antonio, the red phone is your Android, right? Like that. That's <laughs> uh, am I the face of Android in this group? Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can't use Android. Um, there's this there's this wonderful company called Apple that uh, makes this amazing phone with all sorts of interesting privacy features. Yeah. It, it is really interesting that Apple, like all the serious cryptography people I know, they all use iPhones. Uh, I mean, unless they're actually using like a hardened Android, like running something custom, but uh, because they actually buy into Apple's commitment to security, and like obviously the San Bernardino shooter was an example where where they they stuck with it. But as Mark points out, they're a switch away. That's why I, I I was really surprised for them to see this advanced data protection, which they announced. I don't know if you guys it's kind of minor, but now your iCloud encrypt uh, backups in theory will be completely encrypted to the point where they they can't even give law enforcement the kind of like encryption key for your backup. Um, and then they claim that they're not going to turn on that uh, CSAM, you know, local machine learning thing that uh, child, child, you know, abuse uh, material for the, the jargon. But but I, I don't know. It's uh, it is really sad to me, though, that there are only two two mobile operating systems and, and there's no really viable alternative. Like you, you can't be a modern person and be a green bubble. So I, I think like it would be useful <laughs> <laughs> uh, get to a place where like the messaging stack moves out of these OSs and then you can actually potentially use a, a competing phone. In the defense of green bubbles, by the way, just as a, a point on green bubbles, it's a completely American provincial thing. Who the hell actually messages through messages? They can't even thread my conversations correctly the way that Signal and WhatsApp normally does. And so I think that the green bubble stigma is a little bit less outside of the U.S. because for... Try telling that to an American high school student and having <laughs> be the one that can't be in the group chat. <laughs> It's like the definition of ostracism. <laughs> Is it? Not. Man. Uh, let, let's transition to, um, to AI and chat GPT uh, because, oh, um, you know, it seems like we're having the same battles play out. I, I guess I have two big questions. One is sort of like, does open source stand a chance um, here, uh, you know, um, or, or are we really just at mercy to whatever um, politics happen within um, open AI or, or whoever wins? Um, and then also... You know, one thing we were commenting on previously is like, you know, and one thing Mark, you've said for, for a long time is all tech usually leads to um, or tech innovation usually leads to, to more jobs, um, you know, or, or has always led to more, more jobs and, you know, human uh, empowerment, despite, um, you know, the critics fears of, of replacement. Um, we've always created more jobs than it replaced. And and with um, with what's happening here, it, it doesn't seem as obvious that 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 is the you know, inevitable conclusion, um, given how many human capabilities um, it could um, it could replace that, that previously we thought maybe, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe those you know artistic or creative or caring um, capabilities were, were safe, um, but uh, it feels like those are the ones that came after first. Anyways, I'm curious how, how we'd react to either of those two questions: the open source and then the um, you know what it means for for people. So my sense is that, the, you know, what, what's led us here? Like what, what caused the breakthrough, right? What caused this kind of explosion of like, you know, basically functional AI for the first time in, you know, basically 70 years that started around, you know, 2012 and then has, you know, extended forward into what we're seeing today. Um, and basically what, you know, what, what the experts will tell you is it was sort of a combination of three things. It was sort of algorithmic advances. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, neural networks and, and, and so forth getting, getting really good and people having new ideas. Um, it was uh, Moore's law, you know, kind of hitting some level of critical mass. So processing speed kind of actually you know, becoming available at scale uh, to actually run the algorithms. Um, and then um, it was the training, the training data, right? Access to large training data sets. And in particular there, right, the big unlock was internet, basically the internet as a training data set, right? And so Google images is a way to train image recognition and, and um, you know, internet text is a way to train, you know, chat GPT and so forth. Um, and so, you know, those are like the three big drivers. Um, uh, you know, so you kind of break those apart. So training data, it's like, is training data hard to come by? You know, no, it's, it's actually, you know, pretty straightforward. You can scrape the internet. Um, and, um, a lot of people do. Um, and so, and, and then there's also a lot of algorithmic work going into training on small data sets. Um, and so, you know, probably that becomes pretty generally available. Um, compute power and resources, um, you know, today running one of these things, at least at scale is pretty expensive. 
Um, and there's actually a shortage of compute capacity right now because there aren't enough, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, there aren't enough uh, chips in the cloud that, that run this stuff. And so there's actually a shortage today. But, you know, it's, it, again, it's Moore's Law. It's, it's just chips. And again, there's, there's a lot of algorithmic um, uh, improvements going into to, to, so that you need less compute capacity. Um, and then the algorithmic improvements, like a lot of the algorithm, algorithmic improvements are happening kind of behind the scenes. And these companies aren't necessarily, you know, the, like GPT is not open source. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, there are companies now that have made huge investments in AI where the, you know, they, they do have proprietary advantage. You know, having said that, there's a lot of papers, um, you know, and a lot of papers being published. And there's a lot of researchers, a lot of these companies who publish papers and information, you know, the, the, the field is advancing very quick. You know, the AI courses in the CS departments at major universities are, you know, huge now. Um, and so, um, and then just the advances are happening really fast, right? And so the algorithms six months ago are no longer that interesting. And um, and so there's just this constant churn and change. And so the idea that any one person has a secret sauce that they hold on to for 20 years seems, you know, seems seems pretty unlikely. So, so yeah, so aspirationally, I think you'd like to say in the future, you're going to have some combination of open source code with, you know, track tractable economics on compute coupled with, you know, access to large data sets, and then you get open source alternatives. Um, stable diffusion is, you know, the best case scenario, you know, where that, that's actually playing out with image generation right now. You know, that's yeah. that I don't know, like, you know, you've got really smart people at some of these companies um, who want to build long term enduring advantage and are going to try to, I think, erect barriers the same way that, you know, the people always have in business. I'm glad you mentioned stable mm -hmm. diffusion. I actually interviewed Ahmad, I guess, before he did a big fundraise and he was too famous to go on little podcasts like mine, but he's a fast, he's a fascinating figure, right? I think he's either Cambridge or Oxford educated. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't come from a Western background. He just says he's, but he's absolutely committed to making this be not just open source, but something anybody can build on, right? Like in, in our interview, he mentioned that, you know, yeah, no one's going to own this. Anybody in India can train their own models if they want. And that's, and if they have different standards, they can, they can build their own AI tools. Uh, the, which I think is fascinating and obviously the way forward. Um, one question I had for you, Mark, one, one thing that was raised recently, I think Yishan Wong uh, responded to it, which is like some artists, because a lot of this generative AI is obviously trained on the web, right? It's like these large language models are based on the hive mind that is the web, right? That includes both images and text. A lot of those images are actually owned. <laughs> There's actual copyright, right? And these are the, this is the training corpus and the output is not necessarily that, but like a human brain, it looks at a finished work and produces another one. But given that it's being done programmatically and we're about to layer economics on top of it, isn't it the case that maybe that training set, there is some value that should accrue to the creator who created the thing that inspired the generative AI? And of course, my, semi-snarky response is, well, good thing we actually created a way to actually own things in the digital world and put them on chain, right? So at some point, like NFT owned art is going to be the input to not to turn this into like a total Web3 shell channel, but it, it isn't, I, I do wonder, do you think about that? Like, is that, is that like a thing that yet like the inputs to the corpus are actually owned by people who kind of like want to monetize their content? Yeah, there will be some of that. And look, you know, people will probably, you know, there'll probably be a business of creating training data. Um, it'll be one of the things that actually happens. Um, you know, but, but look, I, as you, as you well know, like there, there is just a lot of imagery in the world that is free, right. Um, or for which if somebody does own it, there's no way of even knowing that. Um, and so there's a lot out there. There's a lot of text that's just free, you know? So it's like, okay, I don't know if you don't have access to, you know, it's like, get, you know, Getty, if you don't have access to the Getty photos for training, you know, the journey, does it matter? I mean, there's, you know, the, the number, the number of photos in the world that are not owned by Getty is, are much greater than the number, the number that are. Um, and so, you know, it's like, okay, maybe there's some legal regime for compensation, you know, maybe things just get cut out of the training set, you know, maybe by the way, the future of how AI operates is that it's just going to get trained on things that aren't copyrighted, right? And that, and that in and of itself is going to change the, you know, the, the, the nature of how it works, right? Because it'll, I mean, sort of the classic example on this is, let's say you can't train it on new books, right? Because they're copyrighted, right? Um, and so therefore you could train it on old books. Right. Um, and like all books written, you know, prior to 1923 are public domain. Um, and so you could just train it on the corpus of books that are written before 1923, by the way, all of which are freely available on Google Books today. Um, and then, you know, an, an AI trained on books written prior to 1923 would, let's say, have very different views. <laughs> right. The AI so, ethics people won't like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, okay, like, do you really want, yeah, do you, do you really want, you know, whatever? Yeah. Do you really want 19, 1923 morality, uh, you know, kind of imported into the AI? And, you know, even, even, even people, you know, even pro free speech people might, might have some issues with that. Um, and so, you know, they had some, they had some different views back then. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, 
you know, it's like, okay, how does that play out? Um, and then look, and then there's, you know, the ultimate big question on the other end, which is like, can you even know, like the way these things work is like, can you actually attribute, right? Like, so, you know, mid-journey creates an image. What were the inputs? Like what, what you know, and if, if it, yeah, I don't even, even if you could trace it back to the thousand images or whatever that it were relevant to the, the new image that it generated, you know, like, I, I don't even know, like, like, you know, what, what do you even do with that information? How much, you know, how much, how, how small fractions of a penny are we talking about here? How do you ever actually get the money back? Like, but isn't that how all art forever has been? Is like artists they they learn from the previous, they they mimic that. Like you look at old Picassos, it does not look like the Picasso we think of. I mean, he's the guy with the the quote, you know, great artist copy, you know, or good artist copy, great artist steal. And and I think if it, like there's that YouTube video, everything's a remix. Like any director, like you, you watch a Tarantino movie. Oh, wait, wait a second, that that shot you you copied from this director in you know 1954. Does he? Th that's we're just neural nets ourselves, right? So I, I think you can make the like the programmatic industrial scale training, but in some ways, like if I if I go and spend every day going to the the Met and I want to be an aspiring artist and I just sit there and I look at you know the the paintings isn't isn't that training set like i, I, well, but, I feel like that that argument doesn't hold water but it just sounds scary because it's computers i mean the counter argument to that though is if it can be measured it will be measured right like why does attribution exist i know i'm talking my own bag here but why does attribution exist in the digital world and not in the physical world because there's no way to tell who saw the billboard right you can't tell who actually saw the billboard and so you, you couldn't you couldn't actually credit that advertising with any actual sales credit on the internet. You can sort of string it together. Right. And in AI training, you can string it together. Like, I don't know enough about the aid. I understand that this is possible, but what Mark just said, can you actually take like the thousand leading weights or the, the thousand leading samples that led to this art? You could actually answer that question. Right. And you can't answer what did Picasso see and th that could change the economics of it slightly. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I actually think as we're talking here, I kind of, now you, you guys kind of have me hoping that basically all copyrighted material is going to be excluded from the training sets. <laughs> I think I, I think I, I think I think I'd rather live in the world in which it's it's trained by the Wild West. Google, but for only for pre nineteen twenty three material. Yeah. Well, and anything more, and anything more recent that's not you know that's not it's not it's not owned by the man. Okay, now I'm going to start lobbying. I'm going to start lobbying for copyright enforcement on, uh, on AI. <laughs> this, is, this has been very productive for me today, so thank you. Well, it is interesting. I mean, Peter Thiel famously said that um, you know crypto is libertarian, AI is is communist, but there are worlds in which maybe um, you know there's more cent like crypto is used for more centralizing purposes, and there there's a world in which where um, AI is used for maybe more decentralizing purposes as well. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if the, I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate version of this, right, would be if these, if the, if these algorithms get pra tractable to the point, you know, the, if this, if the work happening on like small data sets and, 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 um, you know, less processing power, right? If you, if you can run fully modern, fully competitive, you know, AI training and, and execution on a local device, you know, then we're in a, yeah, then we're in a very different world. We're in a, you know, we're, we're in the anti, we're in the anti Orwell world for sure, which is, you know, I think would be fantastic. Yeah, I don't know where I saw it. Maybe it was one of those tweets that have been flying around related to AI. I think the next generation of the M2 chips apparently have a lot more integration with the the machine learning stack. And like I'm this way outside my lane. But the, the point being that designed, given that Apple actually already does a lot of this on your, your local device, like computational photography and all that, like the more that can actually start to happen on a laptop, that that's actually pretty... I, that's the world I want to live in. Like, I don't want to have to send everything up to the cloud. Like, you know, use it when you need to. But um, the more the more you can do on device, the better. It feels very American to me, right? Like constitutional uh, amendment protections and things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a really so. Yeah, Apple. Yeah, look, I mean, you've got you know what is pre probably the, the preeminent um, you know kind of technology company of our era that has fully dedicated itself to not doing cloud based AI. Fully, you know, explicitly said that AI runs on the device. Um, and you know, t today, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't talked about this myself, but like, you know, today there's just uh, like <laughs> the gap, just consider this, right, the gap between chat GPT and Siri, right. Um, <laughs> is large. Um, but like that company has already declared, right. Um, uh, that, you know, it, it is determined to have AI running on the device. And so you've got an incredibly, you know, capable, uh, set of people who are going to try to make Dan exactly what you said happen. Yeah, and then that's where the stable diffusion comes in, right? Because if you actually start to build the the bazaar rather than the cathedral, and you have open source, and it actually gets to, to snowball, then you know Apple gets to benefit from that for free, right? Like so. So I, I think I, I'm just very hopeful that it's just not all big companies that that control this stuff.
David Sachs has recently come out and said that he would like more regulation on um, on uh, uh, sort of I think yeah Google and and Apple um, and and Facebook I think more regulation to help you know promote like uh, get rid of censorship and I, when I asked him like hey what about like previously there were just disrupt- disruptive technologies that ended monopolies he said actually you know, the regulations of Microsoft might have actually hurt hurt them enough that. They could be disrupted. Do you think there is a world for regulations that help aid the the world we want to see here, or it's just too dangerous to even entertain it? I'm deeply skeptical because I, I think the second order consequences. Um, you know, you think you're doing one thing, and then you you set off another thing, and I think generally it creates regulatory capture. That said, if you could be really targeted, like scalpel level, and go in. And I think that there was, I actually don't know the names of the bills. Like one was the Open Markets Act or something. And there were like competing visions for the future that just died. It didn't make it the omnibus bill. So next Congress might pick it up. But I, I think like, so I don't want to come off gross as an Apple stand because I actually, you know, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of all these big companies. But I think the the interesting thing is like, okay, so you want open app stores on, on Apple. Okay, so now I'm going to spend all my time doing tech support for my parents, like when they have malware, like going back to like the Windows era of just like this just awful environment. And whereas with a phone, like you never have to worry about that. And the moment you say, okay, you can have alternative app stores, you know, every other company's going to be like, great. Well, in order to get our software, which for the average person, like I, I want to use X or Y app. Uh, they're going to install that third party app store, which is going to have a very different profile from whether it's privacy or security or and, and, and all that. And so I'm sympathetic to the argument that they should, they, they put up time and energy to build these devices. And, and there are two, right? It's not like there's just one. But at the same time, like, we're clearly held back from an innovation standpoint by this duopoly. And, um, you know, you can see this in, in crypto, just as a specific example, like NFTs, you can think there's the stupid, but the reality is, the innovation in that space is held back specifically because Apple has decided that this is uh, something that falls under their 30% tax, which obviously if you understand what an NFT is, like it's just not going to work like that. And so I, I don't have a good answer other than I, I think it's extremely difficult to thread the needle here of, of not like creating a worse world in terms of security, privacy, all, all the things that I think that the specifically Apple does really well today in the current environment while at the same time allowing companies to, to innovate. Now, obviously, Apple could just change the rules themselves, and, and maybe that's actually the best solution is we put enough pressure at the congressional level that they're willing to pack, pack off. And there's this, um, the, the European Union thing that, that might kick into effect, I think, next year. And the rumor is that Apple might just do it in, in Europe and, and TBD on what the definition of these, these third-party apps or sideloading or whatever it will be. But maybe they just kind of say, okay, we're going to do it globally. Like, we, we don't want to have two different versions of the software in, in, in the different countries. That said, they, they already have a different version of the software in China, right? It doesn't have the Taiwan emoji, you know, change the airdrop filter based on the protests. So, so they're definitely capable of, of running different versions of the software in different countries based on, on local laws. But uh, I, I'd, I'd hate to see a blunt instrument when uh, something like a scalpel or, or even better public pressure would get them to actually voluntarily change. Yeah, there's also, um, just to you alluded to it, but there's a practical issue involved with legislation. Like, so it's sort of, you know, the logic chain of, I, I want to solve a problem, you know, well, the logic, I want to solve a problem, therefore I want legislation, now I have two problems. Um, <laughs> right, so um, there, there's just a real a practical issue with legislation as an answer to problems right now, which is the legislation, and we just, we literally just saw this play out this week with the the, the new omnibus bill that, that, uh, that, that, Elon, that Elon is kind of shining a flashlight on today. But, um, you know, look, the, 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 the just mechanically, it's not a political observation, it's a mechanical observation. It's actually true across, across the two parties. Mechanically, the legislative process in this country does not work the way that it used to. Um, the, like the, the whole thing, the whole bill becomes a law, you know, video that we probably all saw when we were kids. Like that doesn't happen now. Like that, 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 that era is over. People do not bring legislation to the floor of the House and the Senate. They don't debate it. They don't have a vote. Like, the, like that doesn't happen anymore. 
right? Instead, what happens is basically 11 months of nothing, and then everything is loaded into this one big bill that pops up the week before Christmas. And then, you know, it's, and then it, and then, you know, they vote on it 12 hours later and nobody reads it and, you know, it passes. And it passes because it funds everything. Um, and so the way legislation actually gets passed in this country in the modern era is it's, you know, the top two or four people uh, across, you know, the Congress and, and, and uh, the Senate and the House, you know, basically decide on all the, all the laws. Um, and so, look, if, if you if you can get those two or four people to sign up for your program, then, you know, you can get it done. And if you can't, you can't. Um, and then you just have to ask the question of like, okay, you know, like Dan said, like if push comes to shove and you've got an activist movement that wants, you know, socially beneficial legislation and it goes up against entrenched interests. Um, and then there's a big kind of shootout for who those two or four people are going to side with. <laughs> it's, it's probably not going to be the little guy. Um, and so then you get the, you, yeah, you get the, you get the second order consequences that Dan alluded to. So I, yeah, yeah. The, the America we live in today harder to see right maybe the last question here um we just covered the three biggest stories of the year in tech it, it seems you know we covered uh elon and twitter we covered uh co covered sbf and fdx and we covered um chat gpt3 and open ai if, if we're sitting here again uh, at the end of next year and doing a roundup on um you know the, the biggest stories What's either a, a prediction you have or a, or a company or trend to watch that you're going into 2023 and looking at and saying, wow, this, you know, there's a fork in the road here and whatever happens is really going to influence the industry? Well, my prediction is, is a make or break year for Google. I, I think the story that came out today is that Red Team Sundar is PMing the Google search AI stuff. But based on what I've seen from just 3.5, right, chat GPT is... GPT 3.5. And what I've heard about before, if you play that out, and obviously they're buddy buddy with Microsoft and potentially step into the future, like all, all of a sudden now every company is going to have access to something that can actually compete with Google. And also, by the way, something that is not naturally set up to show you three or five or six ads before you actually get to the result. I, I think it could be uh, if you don't take it seriously. Um, a, a, a monopoly that immediately starts to look very, very weak because now people are going to be finding different ways to access the same information that they used to go to Google. Again, kind of talking my own book a little bit, but I, I do think it's the year, hopefully, of like consumer web three potentially, right? Like the, the reality is that like token go up is not a law of nature as it turns out. <laughs> and once that's true, then you actually have to build compelling products that people actually care about. And you actually have to acquire users and you have to monetize them and you actually have to build a business on the blockchain, which to date, I think a lot of crypto hasn't had to do. I mean, DeFi is obviously a different story because there that's, that's financially from the outset, but I'm talking about like gaming, NFT marketplaces, et cetera. And I think it is the year where, I mean, certainly from where I'm sitting, you're seeing a lot of interest in, oh, how do we actually measure monetization? How do we measure retention? Which are questions that like are just boring, you know, oh, growth team update questions inside the Facebook growth team inside Web2 are now being asked at Web3 in a way they weren't in the past. And so hopefully that that becomes a trend as a lot of these companies won't be able to raise. Again, they can't launch a token and just they don't have free money to throw around to basically buy users anymore. They have to build viable. And then you also have a lot of Web2 boomers like me moving into this space and saying, I know how to build a game. I know how to build a consumer experience, right? We're going to build it in this other way, right? And so to me, hopefully it, it does become the year of like consumer Web3 in some way. Um, but People, I, Dan's been around in crypto longer than I have. He's probably heard this like every year for the past six years. Yeah, look, I think the the macroeconomic environment that's just outside of crypto as well. It's kind of like weak, you know, weak times or what? what what's the what's the weak times strong <laughs> men thing? Yeah, yeah, I think this is going to be the most extreme of all of them, and so there's right. going to really be a a flushing out of the weak in 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 the crypto world, and and so the, the remaining ones are going to have to actually build things that are useful. Yeah, I'd argue, um, basically, I think all three topics we discussed are just going to greatly intensify. Like, I, I think we're still in the preamble phase of these kind of big, these really big fights. Um, and so, like, in crypto world, like, look, you know, the, 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 there, there are a lot more shadowy international entities that, you know, um, you could say look a little bit like FTX. Um, and so, like, you know, that, that's going to intensify further. Um, uh, then you've got, um, you know, the AI wars, like, are just getting started. Um, like the AI is just getting started, you know, kind of gathering steam, but things are going to get, I think, both amazing, profound, and 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 a lot of a lot of issues are going to really get intense. Um, yeah, and then look, the social media wars and and um, you know, the speech wars and the control, all these control questions we're talking about. Like, yeah, I, I think we're just at the very beginning. 
Um, and, you know, and we're, we're learning things like, you know, just even the stuff that, that, that is being published in the Twitter files, like we're learning things about kind of what's been happening behind the curtain uh, for the last decade. And we're going to learn a lot more about that, I think, in the next year. And then I think the, the, the fight both, you know, for people who want to maintain control of these platforms and people who want to open them up um, is going to get much more intense even than it is today. Well, if the last few weeks or, you know, last two months are any indication, it's going to be very entertaining, uh, to say the least. Um, we'll, we'll close on, on that. Mark, thanks for, thanks for coming on our first episode. Thanks, Mark. Yep, you bet. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.